There is uh, an insert in the bulletin, or uh, actually it's not an insert in the bulletin, but something that maybe you picked up as you were coming in. It says, spending time in God's Word. want to draw your attention to it very quickly. Uh, if you don't have one, you can get one as you're going out. But at the beginning of a year, there's lots of resolutions, as you know. And one of the resolutions that a lot of people like us, disciples of Jesus, like to do is we want to know God's Word more intimately and more profoundly, more deeply. And we get into the habit of going through the Word of God and reading it and thinking about it. And uh, Barry Newton, thank you, Barry, for putting this together. Uh, he has put together a reading guide for you, and we would love for you to pick one of these up. If uh, you need some more instruction or uh, have some questions, make sure you contact Barry at some time, and he would love to sit down with you and talk to you about, about this. Um, we want to, you know, at the beginning of the year, we want to talk about the Word of God and, and pressing our minds into God's Word. And I want to begin with one of the great philosophical questions that over the last nearly 100 years has never been answered, at least adequately. A question has been asked by a lot of people, and the question has been worded a little bit like this. How could someone like Adolf Hitler become not only popular, but ultimately powerful in a nation like 20th century Germany, or in a part of the world like Western Europe? Uh, obviously, there is not one simple answer to that question. But what uh, some of the uh, biographers of Dietrich Bonhoeffer have written is that uh, the church in Germany um, had, had sort of lost its way. The, uh, the, the height of intellectualization and the, the academy in Germany when it came to theology was, was at an all-time high. But the faith of the church, the lived-out faith of that word of God had sort of lost it, its muscle to challenge the direction that the country was taking under Hitler. And um, in essence, the, the church just just faltered. And no one saw this as clearly, perhaps, than Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who went on to write one of the greatest books on the power of the true Christian community. But most of us know him from his most popular book, which was, known as, which was on discipleship, and it was known as The Cost of Discipleship. What it means to follow Jesus of Nazareth. It is a, a reminder that in every age, that it's not just what the church says, but how it lives that is important. In uh, Colossians chapter 3, and, and again, it's not just our age, it's not just the past century, it's throughout all of the ages, the church has had to deal with not only its message, but its, its, its life, its, its witness. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, whatever you do, Paul writes to the church in Colossae, whatever it might be, whatever you're doing, doing it, do it, whether in word or deed, you do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, all of us fathers know, uh, mothers too, 
that when you have multiple kids, there are times when you know you have to you know you have to send a kid as a representative. And what is it that you tell them to do when you you know go tell your sister to stop doing that and tell them that it's me and my name? You know, I'm telling you, Dad said, stop doing that. And there is a sense in which you read the words in the name of Jesus. It is about the authority. But when it says in the name of Jesus, it's also the idea of doing it as if Jesus were here himself as his representatives. One of the big ideas of the sermon this morning is up here on the screen. There must never be a disconnect between the faith that is professed and the faith that is practiced by disciples of Jesus. Let me say that again. There must never be a disconnect between the faith that is professed and the faith that is practiced by disciples of Jesus. Or we might say it another way, say it this way. The gospel is always going to be communicated in word and deed. Not just word, but also in deed through the lives of the disciples of Jesus. Now in the passage that Stephen just read for us, I want us to, it's so rich, we can't get to everything in those, those ten verses or so, but I want us to look at three things. Uh, the, God's word challenges us, God's word transforms us, and God's word frees us. And that's all in this passage out of James chapter 1. Let's think about God's word challenging us. I remember the first time as, as a young man, I was actually um, a sophomore or a junior in high school, the very first time I read Harper Lee's book, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. I was in high school at the time, and it was, as a young man, it was one of the first times that I read something and understood, at least in part, some of the social implications my favorite character of all time in all fiction is Atticus Finch. And I mean, that's Gregory Peck. He will always look like Gregory Peck, uh, you know, just holding forth in that courtroom and just the wisdom, Atticus Finch. But the book was also filled with all kinds of characters, and I love them all. Uh, Atticus's son, Jim, and his daughter, Jean Louise, whose nickname was what? Scout, Right? There was Dill Harris, whose, whose character was based on the true life Truman Capote. There was Tom Robinson. There was Boo Radley. There was Calpurnia. And as much as I love the book, and I've read it several times, in fact, during the pandemic just recently, a, a couple of years ago, I said, you know what? I'm, I'm tired of watching TV. I want to I go back and just read classics. I reread the book and fell in love with it all over again. But here's the thing, after all of these years and loving the book and reading it time and time, as much as I loved it and in many ways was enlightened by it and blessed by it, after I put it down, finished reading it, put it back on the shelf, I was still the same person, basically. I was just still the same person. Now, I wonder if there are times where we read the Bible and come away after reading the Bible the same way as we come away reading another book. An important question is this. Do we come away from reading the Bible unchallenged? Do we read the Bible in such a way that as we walk away from it and the words of Paul or David or, or Jesus are resonating and, and, and bouncing around in our mind, that we walk away unchallenged? In other words, do I come away from reading God's Word the same person as I went into it? Now, every time we engage the Word of God, it is a reminder that we have been led both, number one, into a new life, 
And number two, in that new life, there is a new way to live. Listen again to a couple of the verses that Stephen read out of James 1. Listen to them again. Verse 18. He chose us, or he chose to give us, birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Drop down to verse 21. He talks about being humbly, you know, for us to humbly accept the word that is what? Planted in you which can save you. Drop down another four or five verses to verse 25. But whoever looks intently into what? The perfect law. Now, there's a lot in there, but I want to kind of underscore a couple of things, two things, namely, that when that word is planted in you, it kind of creates a a first fruit effect. And then number two, uh, James refers to it as the perfect law. Let's look at those two things. First, first fruits. As you engage the Word of God, as the Word of God is planted in you, it kind of creates or, or, or makes of you a kind of a first fruit. What in the world is James talking about? We run into the idea of first fruits in Genesis chapter 3. And then later in Exodus chapter 23, when it becomes a practice for the newly liberated 12 tribes of, of Jacob or of Israel when they are, when they are liberated from Egypt. And as we read about the first fruits throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, the first fruits were the first part of the harvest that was dedicated and given to God. It was actually a ceremony that was to express and, and, to, and, and to develop trust in the people. That when the harvest came, the first fruits belonged completely to God. And they were given to God in, as a recognition that God had given everything to them, that God was the creator of heavens and earth and the creator and the provider of this harvest. And at the same time, it was an act of faith and an act of trust that in giving this to God, there would be more to come. That there, after the first fruits, there would be more fruit to come. The first fruits were the first part of the harvest that was dedicated or given to God. The first fruits did not belong to anyone else They solely and completely belonged to God. Now, when you engage the Word of God in such a way that it becomes planted in you, you become, in James' words, a kind of a first fruit. That is, you become a human being that is completely given to God. As a first fruit, you become completely and solely belonging to God in all that you do. So there's kind of this new relationship that is wrought or triggered by the Word of God being planted in you. You become kind of a first fruit. You belong to God and to to God alone. But then number two, he calls it the perfect law. Now, referring to the Bible as law seems a little bit weird right? Because we also know that there are historical books, there are poetic books, prophetic books, apocalyptic books. There's all kinds of different writings from from Genesis all the way to the maps. And referring to the Bible as law is a way of saying that all the Bible becomes a way of shaping your life. That the law, the Bible as law, as teaching, becomes a way of shaping your life, shaping the way that you think, the way that you make decisions. It begins to form and create a different kind of a worldview. 
And referring to that law as perfect is a reminder that we do not pick and choose what we like, and then we tune out just the rest. Now, uh, that has always been a challenge throughout the centuries for, for disciples of Jesus and for whatever culture the Bible makes its way into. Uh, let me give you an illustration of what I mean by that, about picking and choosing. Um, Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, right? And right there at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't commit adultery, don't look lustfully on a woman. He's talking about a sexual morality. And everyone in that first century culture said, oh, absolutely, that, that makes absolute sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Sounds good. But then, as you continue reading the Sermon on the Mount, all of a sudden Jesus says, love your enemies, even those Romans. Pray for those who persecute you. Yes, those Romans. Turn the other cheek. He would talk about forgiveness. And there was a group of, of folk in Israel at the time that uh, called the Zealots, that would have heard all of that, they would have gotten the sexual morality part and said, yeah, absolutely. But then the Roman love your enemy part, they would have said, ah, you got to be kidding me. I'm out. Now today, people like us in the Western culture, we hear things like love your enemies and, you know, forgive people and turn the other cheek. And we say, sure, makes a lot of sense. I mean, there's a lot of bad things happening in the world. That makes, makes a lot of sense. But then we hear sexual life has to be under the lordship of Jesus. And we say, wait a minute, I'm out. Do we believe that the creator God who has created everything heaven and earth, everything in between, including you and me, and is communicating through the centuries in every place around the world, in a broken world, to people who are broken, will ever say anything that is going to cross our will or our, our desires. Well, absolutely, he will. Where you live... And when you live will affect how you hear God's word. But we remember that it is a perfect law. It shapes our lives. And there is an aspect of it being perfect in the sense that we do not choose and pick what we like and what we don't like. It is all for our good in engaging us with God. Brings us to the next point. God's word transforms us. Let me read uh, verses 26 and 27 again. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves. And their religion is what? Worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted, being polluted, some of the translations put stained by the world, unstained by the world. Now, where one question was, do we come away from reading the Bible unchallenged? Another way of saying it, or a second question, is this. Do we come away from reading the Word of God, the Word of God, 
unchanged. I am in agreement with uh, a lot of the commentators, uh, like uh, Douglas Moo, for instance, who says that, you know, that James is not summarizing and crystallizing Christianity, per se, in just a couple of acts. What James is illustrating is, in, in, in describing it this way, is illustrating what a transformed life looks like, what a word-shaped or a word-driven life looks like, what a life looks like that takes the Word of God seriously in, in, in their historical context. Now, James is going to write about an outer life and an inner life. James writes that the outer life is going to be affected by the Word of God. We're going to become careful with what we say to other people. It's an outward expression of something that's going on on the inside, right? It's going to be expressed in the way that we treat people, especially vulnerable people, the way that God has treated us. In, in Exodus 22, the Lord commanded the people not to take advantage of a widow or an orphan. The, the weak and the helpless and the vulnerable of that culture. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, to provide for the widow and the orphan. So there is this outer expression of God's Word, but there's also, uh, it also infects, affects our inner life. Now, he's already zeroed in on the outer life. He now addresses a life where the estrangement from God ends and the unpolluting and you begin to unpollute your inner being. Uh, you, you know what a stain is, right? A stain is not something that's just on the surface. I mean, if it was just on the surface, you just get, you know, a wash rag, a little bit of water, and wipe it off, and it's gone. But a stain is something that goes deeper, that takes more work to, to, to get out. Now, James has already given at least three practical ways that the Word of God brings transformation into our lives. And they're found in verses 23, 24, and 25. He says, Anyone who listens to the, world but, to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror. And after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Now, very quickly, let's look at those three highlighted words. Let's start with the word mirror. You know, like a lot of you, you know, we get up early in the morning. I get, I get up very early, very early in the morning. I get a couple of uh, cups of Joe down the hatch, do my readings, get out, walk a couple of miles in the woods. You know, everything's starting to get lubricated up, and I'm starting to feel pretty good. feel like, man, I feel like I'm 25 year, years old. And the danger of being 62 and thinking you're 25 is you can do some damage to yourself. And so, you know, I walk into the house, you know, I'm feeling pretty good, you know. Uh, you know, I can move, and I go into the bathroom to shower and to get dressed, and all of a sudden there's somebody different looking at me in the mirror. And I go, hello, who are you? And that face says, I'm you, and just let me say today, it would be smart if you didn't pick up any pianos. The mirror tells a different story about me. And one of the things that happens when we engage the Word of God on a regular basis is that it not only tells you a different version about you than you think you know about yourself, but it's telling you the truth. 
And the truth is, you're really worse than you ever thought possible. But you're loved more profoundly and deeper than you ever imagined. That you are loved and gifted and blessed in such a way that it not only brings you into God's light, but God puts His Spirit in you and you begin to be changed into the human being you were always supposed to be. That's why we engage the Bible, folks. It's like a mirror that lets us know who we are, but at the same time tells us who God is in light of that fact. Then number two, looks intently. That word intently is the same word that is used to describe Peter when he's looking into the empty tomb of Jesus. I mean, can you imagine? You think that Jesus is dead, and you go to that tomb that morning, and it's empty. And you know for a fact that Jesus was dead, and he was put in that tomb, and he was wrapped up, and, and he, the stone was everything. He's dead for three days. And then the ladies come back and say, no, 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 no. And you go, and you're looking for Jesus. Do you think that when Peter went in and was looking around, that it was just like, oh, hum, you know. He was looking intently. Where is he? Where is he? Where is, what? Asking questions. Do we read the Bible the way that Peter is looking into that tomb? And then number three, continues in it. Never stop or give up pressing your mind into the Word of God continually. Daily habit, just continually, continually, continually doing it. And that leads us to the third, and that is God's Word frees us up. In verse 25, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, the Revised Standard Version says, the law of liberty... And continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. You know, one of the things that you hear me say a lot is that the gospel is not only that you can be forgiven, that you can be saved, but it's also that you can be saved from yourself. That is, you can become the human you were always meant to be. Now, most of the conversations I hear, and maybe you too, that... uh, that I hear about freedom these days sounds like toddlers' definitions of freedom. I want to do what I want to do. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I want to do it where I want it, with who I want, when I want, what I want. And ironically, when we buy into that definition of freedom, it leads to enslavement, to passions and desires and is at the, at the heart of addictions. Freedom is actually the ability to move freely within the boundaries of what it means to be a human. A human that is not God, but made in the image of God. Freedom is actually the ability to do and to be what you were made to do and to be. For instance, the human, like all of us in here. The human was created created to get around on legs. We can walk, we can skip, we can run, we can crawl. On the other hand, the human 
does not have wings, and we cannot fly like a bird. I mean, we can fly like in a plane, but we do not have wings. We have legs, not wings. And if the human ignores those limitations and says, I want to do what I want to do, and I want to do it when I want to do it, and runs off that cliff flapping the arms, well, you know what's going to happen. That's foolishness, not freedom. There is actually a lot of freedom in living within the boundaries of how we are made. God's Word frees us up to be truly human. You know, one of, one of the things that we do when we go to the Word of God, we've already talked about this, and I won't spend much time on it because we need to close out, but one of the things that we do when we come to the Word of God is that we, we see ourselves, it's like a mirror, it's telling us the truth about ourselves. We look intently into the Word to see ourselves. We also look intently into the world to see another, into the Word to see another, do we not? Jesus one day told religious leaders, all Scripture points to me. We look in Scripture and we are pointed to the one who actually did the Word of God, the, the perfect law. Did it perfectly, without blemish. When, when he was tempted by Satan, what did he do? He quoted Scripture. When he was teaching, he quoted the Word of God. And in that, those last moments of his life, when he's dying, what is he doing? He's quoting Scripture. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The psalm ends with, 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 with the, the, the sound of hope. We never forget we never forget that Jesus is the one who never forgot God's word, but fulfilled it with his life. And he is the one through whom we find access to God. And this morning, if you would like to learn more about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, then I'm going to be out by the green wall. Out here in the foyer, there's a green wall that says, Welcome, we're glad you're here. Come find me. Let's talk about what it means to allow this word to speak to us in such a way that we see ourselves and we see Jesus and we see a way to God. Amen? Let's stand and sing.